Welcome again uh, to Seven Mile Road. I hope this laptop is not distracting for you. I was going to use an iPad today, but as I was uh, going over the sermon, it started to freeze. And so that's probably the last thing I need because I'm already pretty nervous up here. <laughs> so bear with me as I, as I have this computer in front of me. Um, I hope it's not too distracting. This morning, we are so happy to have you here. Um, if you're new here or were not able to make it last week, we just kicked off a new series um, at the church called um, Life in 4G. And we're in the second week of this new preaching series. Um, it's going to be a shorter sermon series uh, that deals with four aspects of God's character. And so if you were with us last week, you were here to hear how um, God being great affects us. And this week, we're going to be covering how God is glorious. And next week, how God is gracious and then good. And so our hope is that as we talk through these four characteristics of God, uh, that we would begin to gaze upon God who is greater than everything, more glorious and more gracious and more good than anything we could ever place our eyes on. And that in turn, when we look at God and when our eyes are gazing upon him, that in turn, as we look at who he is, we would change who we are. That that would be the medium for our change. That as we think about the sin and struggles of our own lives, these truths about God would be more than abstract theological truths, but that they would actually affect us deeply to the core of who we are. And so last week we said that the sin that we commit externally, what we see on the surface, the very sin of our hearts, does not appear without a root. There is something deeper. That our unbeliefs or the things that we actually do believe are all our actions and all of our emotions, all of it is rooted in something deeper. That our emotions and behavior, they're just symptoms. And so while we think changing our behavior, simply changing the way we do things with our hands, while we think that's the, that, that's the cure for our sin, um, we're saying that that's not the remedy for sin because behavior modification will fade soon. You could do that and then stop, and then your heart, your heart still remains the same, which is sinful and wretched. And so we want this series to help uh, to connect good theology with real life, on-the-ground sin and struggles that you and I face. Just a moment ago, we, we recited the Apostles' Creed, and we heard a Puritan prayer. We recite each week creeds and confessions of what we believe, rich creeds of our faith, of the Christian faith each week. But when do these confessions um, become functionally apparent in our lives? Rather than a theory that's up in space, when do they meet us on the ground? Can we actually take these truths of God and flesh them out in real life? Are these beliefs actually making a difference? Sanctification is a word that, if you've been in church, you may have heard. It's a theological word that is essentially this. The narrowing of the gap between confessional faith and functional faith. Confessional faith, which is in our heads, and functional faith, which is how we behave and live day to day. What we're aiming for is to connect these two worlds. These two worlds that often in church, if you've been in it long enough, you, you realize that often what we say with our tongues and what we live on the ground are often two different things. And I struggle with this as well. I can, I can say things with my mouth, but when I get on the ground, real life hits, and I just forget everything I've believed and learned and studied. And so the, the thing with this is, um, we're not going to attempt to do this with our own works, with our own hands. What we're aiming for is change. And we have a God who is able to change us. 
we have hope because of who he is. And so as we consider our next um, attribute of God this morning, let's go to the throne room of God and ask for his guidance for our hearts to receive his word um, with humility and trust in him. Let's pray. God, we are amazed as we stand before you, as we sit before you, a holy God. Father, you invite us to come to you with who we are. Um, you accept us. And Father, there are truths about you that our hearts so often do not believe. Father, as we search your word, as your word penetrates our heart, God, may it not just sit on our minds, but may it go out and functionally have some kind of fruit. Father, we don't want to just be hearers, but we want to be doers of your word. And so we ask for the spirit to be at work here today. We ask for the Spirit to be on my heart and my tongue as I speak to these people and I speak to my own heart. Father, be in the hearts of your people today and may we hear from you, not man. May we hear your word, your voice, speaking louder than the words of the world and of each other, God. We come to you today and we ask that you would bless our time this morning. Amen. When you hear the word um, glorious, what comes to your mind? This giant word, glorious. I've had enough conversations with you guys on the ground to realize that most of our conversations, I would say 90% of them revolve around food. And so I would think that when I say glorious, most likely you're thinking Han Dynasty, dry pepper shrimp in Center City, most glorious food that you've ever had. That's probably what's in your mind. And I would even say that Seven Mile Road, we could probably start our own Han Dynasty and have it sustain itself because we love this food so much. It is glorious. Their food is beautiful. We have other images of sports. We have, we have people like Air Jordan who leaps from the foul line and goes and soars, and we see that sight, and it is glorious. Jay's not here this week, so I could say that my Chevy Aveo to me is a glorious sight of, of just human ingenuity and engineering that pales in comparison to his uh, Toyota Camry. It is a late, great Chevy Aveo. I no longer have it because I think his sermons got to me. But nonetheless, I think that thing is glorious. What else could be glorious to us? If you're into nature and, and the sights of the world, you might look into nature and maybe the Grand Canyon, or you might look at a starry night and be filled with awe, or you might even look at the sun, a sun where, when, when it's millions of miles away still blinding us when we see it, a glorious, glorious sight to our eyes. When we think of glory and beauty and brilliance, or, or any attribute for that matter that exists in the world, our minds are limited to things that we can relate them to, right? So we, we talk in, um, in, in words and sights and, and things that we have seen and things that we can relate them to. But when we consider God and we consider his attributes, their source is not from some other origin or thing, but he is the essence of everything that exists. He has created us. We didn't just come out of thin air. The world you see around, he made it all. And so last week when we talked about God's greatness that not only spans the known universe, what we just know, it also touches the very details of our lives so that we don't have to be in control of them. And, and we saw how understanding that God is great affects our lives and puts into perspective God's control versus ours. And so we, got, we received peace and comfort from that word. 
His greatness cannot be compared to another, nor can his glory. And that's what we're going to be considering today, that God is glorious. Before we consider what this truth means for us on the ground, let's first consider um, the text that Nate read for us this morning in Isaiah 6. And so just to give you a little bit of background on this text, um, the passage, the first line of the passage uh, in verse 1 says that um, King Uzziah has died. This isn't accidental, this isn't just a flippant statement, but this was important because it sets up how we read Isaiah 6. King Uzziah, if you look back in 2 Chronicles, was this great and wonderful, majestic king who the Lord had blessed. He sought God, and he was prosperous. If you look at 2 Chronicles 26, it says that he conquered and he built, and he had an army of over 300,000 men. And so he, he started his rule at age 16, and it lasted for 52 years, a long, prosperous reign. But what happened with King Uzziah, later on as he grew prosperous, as he, as he grew strength and his army was um, marching forward in the land, he became proud. And so what he decided to do was go in and, uh, and perform one of the tasks of the temple that were reserved for the priests. He thought he can go in and despite God's order and, and command, he went forward and tried to perform this task. And so to his dismay, after being warned by other priests, he continued and he, he persisted. And then God, what does he do? He strikes him with leprosy. And so you'd imagine if God treated us that way, all of us would be lepers. If we, we disobeyed God in that way. And so God saw that. He wasn't going to stand for it. Old Testament, Second Chronicles 26, strikes him with leprosy. And he has it till the day he dies, which is where uh, we, we are found today in Isaiah 6. And so Isaiah wrote about the accounts of King Uzziah and his reign. And so that's where we are today. And so you can imagine that Isaiah knows what happened to King Uzziah. He is standing before this God. He has a vision of this great God who struck Uzziah with leprosy. And so he stands before him trembling with fear. He knows that he himself is not clean. He himself knows that the people around him are unclean. And so this is how we read Isaiah 6, with that in mind, starting from verse 1, if you have your Bibles. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And so we see this sight that Isaiah is seeing in this vision. It's truly amazing. Because you see that King Uzziah, it starts off that he died, but the Lord he still remains on the throne. So what does that speak? Think about it. He is still there when the earthly king has passed and faded. God is still there. And God is still there despite the sins of the nation of the king. He is still there despite their sins and failures. And he is not only there, but the train of his robe, it says, fills the temple so much so that the seraphim who are mentioned here have to hover above the throne because that train of his fills the entire throne room. 
It is a magnificent sight. And the seraphim that are mentioned here, if you look throughout the, throughout the Bible, this is the only place that they are mentioned. Other, other angelic beings are mentioned like cherubim. But this is the only place where the seraphim are mentioned. And so you can imagine that Isaiah never heard of these beings before, never saw them before. And so his unfamiliarity with these beings probably made him even more intimidated. What are these beings with these feet and these wings and, and, and they're covering their eyes and they're covering their feet, not even being able to look at God? They hovered over the throne, flying and covering their faces and feet. It says that the foundations shook. Could you imagine if the foundations of this room shook, what trembling and fear would go through our bodies? And then smoke filled the entire house. This is a scene that Isaiah could never have imagined, and it overtakes him. He is undone, and he fell apart before the holy and perfect God. The great God of the world is on glorious display here, and what does Isaiah say? What's the only thing he could say in front of God? Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so it is no secret that Isaiah was fearful, that he was in awe, that he was amazed, that he saw God as glorious. Isaiah thought that he may die in the presence of this God because of what happened to Uzziah and because he understood that this God was powerful. This is not just any person or thing. This is the holy and perfect creator that created all that exists. Isaiah wasn't clean and he realized the depth of his sin when he stood before a holy God. When we said our confession just a moment ago and we took a moment of silence, what we're hoping would happen is that as we gaze upon God, as we see him as holy, that as we look at ourselves in light of his holiness, that we would begin to see the depth of our depravity and our fall and our sin. And so Isaiah realized that here. Can you imagine being there with Isaiah on the floor, staring at this sight, we would not be able to stand. We would buckle at our knees. This is the God who told Moses that he would die if he saw his face. In Revelation 1.17, John, one who walked with Jesus, it says that he encountered God and fell before him as dead. As a dead man, he fell before him. This God was one to be feared. So in this moment, does Isaiah try to somehow attempt to appease God? No, it would be foolish. Or does he somehow try to work up to, to be worthy to bef before God despite the sin that's in his heart? No, that too would be futile. So what does Isaiah do next? He does nothing. Isaiah does nothing. But we read something else here. In the next verse it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Here's what the gospel does for sinful, ruined, marred people like you and I. By God's grace, we who are dead in sin, on a path to eternal hell, are not just revived and saved from hell, but we are given all of the treasures of heaven. We are given Jesus and his righteousness and eternal life, all without doing a single thing. And that is the truth of the gospel. 
that when we were dead, unable to do anything, God came and revived our dead hearts, made them alive to have and receive eternal life in Jesus Christ. He has done it. He has touched our lip. He has taken away our sin, and our uh, sin has been atoned for by the work of God and by the work of his son, Jesus Christ. One author says it like this, that God covers his naked enemies, brings them to the wedding feast, and he marries them instead of crushing them. What should have been our fate, Jesus took for himself, for our sake. And so this grace that we see Isaiah receive is also the story of we who have received Jesus. When our sins demanded death, Jesus leapt before death and took it for us and gave us life. And because of what Jesus has done, we have been received by God. Every single time we hear that, our hearts should leap for joy because our very standing in eternal life has been secured because of Jesus. The very God before whom Isaiah could barely stand, the most glorious one of all, has accepted you and has accepted me. Approves of you, loves you because Jesus stands in your place. And everything that shames us, just take a moment and think of those things that shame you, the past that you have dealt with, even current sins or current things you know about yourself or you're scared that other people know about you. He has taken all of that and covers you with a white robe and says that you are mine. And he marries you. He is, the, he is our groom and we are his bride. He takes us to his wedding feast, clothes us with a white robe and says we are his. Imagine what else could be sweeter than to have the welcome of God himself. What else could be more glorious? Sadly, we could say that with our hearts, we could say that with our lips, but as, as soon as I say that God is glorious, and I, I preach here with conviction and passion that I believe God is glorious, but often I don't believe that, and I say there is something more glorious. You and me, people, people can seem more glorious to us than God ever can. And this cripples us. The twisted thing about sin is that it could take what is most true about God and turn that thing into a lie. When I preach with conviction and say that, it seems so inconsequential when I get out of this church door and I hit the pavement and I face real people in real life. God does not seem all that glorious to me when I face people face to face. Let's consider the word glorious for a moment. Isaiah 6 gave us a vision for the gloriousness of God. But let's define what that might mean. The Hebrew Old Testament uses this word glorious and it denotes something that is most weighty or most impressive. Some other words that we might use to describe glorious is, is brilliant or beauty worth, significance. So here's my question to you. Is God really the most glorious thing to you in your life? Is he really the one that is most beautiful and gives you the most significance in life? Let me ask it more openly. What voice weighs heaviest in your life? Whose opinion do you consider to be most valuable? For me, if I were being honest, I fear man so much more often than I fear God. The, the, the rhythm of my life 
is not remembering that God is glorious, but that people are. And I would say that all of us struggle to some extent in different ways, some in similar ways, with this. Ed Welsh, uh, a resource that has been helpful for me in my preparation for the sermon, in one of his books says this, that the fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. We can call it reputation, we can call it peer pressure, codependency, people-pleasing. Whatever we call it, it stems from this sin and struggle of fearing man. And it is a sin, for we are not believing God's word about himself. The fear of man is talked about much in scripture. Uh, to illustrate what fear of man looks like, let me give you two examples from my own life, which may be comical, which may be funny or sad, depending on how you, you look at it. Um, recently, a couple of weeks ago, I was given the grand opportunity of being able to hit the dance floor at a wedding for the first time in my life. And so I, I play music at the church, and I, I, I feel like I have some kind of concept of music, but I tell you the truth, my, my two feet are left, and my entire body just shuts down anytime it has to move rhythmically to a beat. And so me and Steph are driving to the wedding, and we're trying to talk about whether or not we're going to actually dance at a wedding because we grew up, grew up in, a, in a culture that just absolutely despised it. And so I have no experience with it. I'm fearful like crazy. And so we get there. And so as soon as we sit down, we have a couple of other friends that we knew there. We sit down and we start talking about it a little bit. And all I can imagine is that as soon as I go out on the dance floor, somehow a, a, a random spotlight is going to be on me and everyone is going to view every single awkward move that I make, every single stiff and awkward uh, whatever that I try to do. And so that's, that's all I could think of. But thankfully, I soon looked out onto the dance floor and no one knew how to dance. And so we four, we just went out there and did our best. And, and it was a great time. I did the Cotton Eye Joe pretty well and I got praised by my fellow friends there. And the funny thing about it is though, what kept me from going out on the dance floor was so silly. I only knew about five people out of over 100 people that were there. But I could not get this fear shaken out from me until I was, I was encouraged by those who were with me. Another silly example, um, Steph is probably going to be surprised when I even say this. Um, again, with, with leading music at the church, I, I often, when we drive home, or even before when we were dating, when I would drop Steph off at home, I wanted some feedback on how I did. And so what I would do was, as we're driving in the, in the car, I would start to sing a song that we just sung that, that Sunday. And so my aim, my goal in this was simple. I want to remind Steph of the song we just sung so that she can now respond and say, oh, hey, you're singing that song. You sounded so good on Sunday. But, but to my dismay, but to the praise of God, usually what happens is instead of commenting, she'll just start singing along with me. And so an utter failure in my mind. She's singing praise to God. I'm like, no, no, that's not what I want you to do. And so what do I do? I start singing in a different key, a higher key that she can't reach, so that she would get her mind off of singing with me and start to think again, wait, that song, that's what you sung at the stage on Sunday. And usually all that turns out to be is just really high-pitched singing all the way home, and I don't get my glory, I don't get my praise. But, but it's, it's funny because... We, we try to be strategic even in the way that we, we think about these things. And so these two examples of my life, though comical and silly, speak to something much larger that is in my heart and in yours. Our actions are constantly being determined based on what other people think. 
we live in ways that constantly seek out and even strategically seek out to gain affirmation and praise from others. We fear people and we want so badly for them to think well of us. But why are we this way? What made us this way? In Genesis, when we look back, Adam and Eve, our first parents, disobeyed God and trusted that a fruit was more satisfying than God himself. A simple fruit. When they ate of it, they fell into sin and it affected all of humanity. It affected you and I. And though they were naked before God, they now were ashamed of their vulnerability. And so they tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves, but those fig leaves withered. God and others could now see them for who they were. And everyone's gaze, including God's, were like piercing stadium lights into their souls. And they felt exposed. And so they initiated the mantra that has plagued all of humanity. The mantra that many of us say. What will people think? What will people think? Their actions were determined by what others thought, of what they perceived others to think. It's not necessarily even that other people think something. It's what you think they might think. They think of you. And so we get, we get completely twisted in our understanding of this. And, and so even with Adam and Eve, this culture of shame continued throughout Hebrew culture. And so you would have men who would cheat on their wives, and the woman would be dishonored because of the shame that she brought for doing nothing. Even children, rowdy children, unruly children, who would act up and act goofy would be a disgrace to their parents in that culture. And so we fast forward to our sophisticated modern era, but it's no different. We face the same problems, the same struggles. As it said today, we live as people behind walls that are 10 feet thick, 10 feet deep. No one can come in and we can't get out. These walls protect us from the gaze of others. These walls are built with fame, with money, with jobs, with busyness, with popularity, with success. And every day is Halloween. Just like we, we make our morning cup of coffee in the morning, we put on our masks and we treat it like it's Halloween. We live out in, in, a, in, a, in a model of our lives that we think we should be living out. Our great hope is to achieve certain things. And so whether it be a certain way to look or a position to have or an image of your family that you want to be absolutely perfect or a home, or your possessions, we say, if I could just have that, then I would be good. I understand all this truth about God, but, but I just want that one more thing. Just like the Israelites, God was not enough. And so what do they make? They made an idol before themselves. Just in case God was not enough, this would give us satisfaction. This would give us pleasure and meaning. We want to put forth an image that is respectable and acceptable and commendable. And we'll, do, we'll go to great lengths to gain this approval from others, even trampling over the very people that we love to gain it. But these are all just fig leaves we try to use to cover up our shame. In the garden, God created humanity and called us good. He called us good. But quickly, Quickly, once sin entered, our minds have been locked on 
to try to, covering up, to, co- to cover up our shame with, feel, with fleeting things and with smaller gods and with smaller idols. And our idol of choice is people. You and I, each other. And it's the funniest, most ironic thing because we would never think so. We would never consider the person next to us or our spouse or our friend or our colleague at work to be the thing that we consider God in our life. One pastor recalls a time he was in Myanmar and he visits uh, this, this temple called the Shiwagiran Temple, which is the largest Buddhist temple in the world. He goes to this temple and while he was there, he saw these poor and oppressed people um, who were broken. They were placing their last coins, their last dollars into the treasury box of this temple. They wanted to be fixed. They wanted to be restored and wanted. On the other side of, these, on, on the other side of this temple, um, the, the pastor walked around and he saw uh, scaffolding set up on the side of this great Buddhist image, this idol. And he saw the scaffolding and he looked up and there were workers at the top fixing this idol. And, the, and it was deteriorating and crumbling with age and with weather, and pieces of this very Buddha, this idol, were crumbling to the ground. And you can immediately see the irony that you have this, uh, this group of broken people trying to fix this broken God, this broken idol, asking this broken idol to fix their broken lives. And it just seems so ironic and so silly that something that is broken, we would ask to fix ourselves. And the same is for us. We expect people who are tragically broken to be able to give us meaning and worth in life. And we place this pressure on ourselves and we, we place it on each other. And when they, when they don't give it, we are crushed. And even if they do give it for a brief moment, it does not last. And we again are empty. If you've ever watched Rocky, if, you, if you're a Philadelphian, you most likely have watched Rocky, Rocky, and you remember the line that is said when he says, if I can only go 15 rounds with the champ, then I'll know I'm not a bum. Just 15 rounds, give me that much, and I'll prove to you that I'm not a bum. We struggle to make that point with our lives to the people around us, to the people who are sitting right next to us, to the people at work and our families, that we are not bums, that we are significant, that we are intelligent, that we are smart people, that we matter, that our voices are worth hearing. And if people don't believe it, if people don't give us affirmation to that end, we are crushed. And I'm right there with you. And so we work like madmen to get those around us to approve us. Whether we like being noticed or even try hard to be avoided, they both stem from the same problem that we fear men, crave their acceptance, and, and fear their rejection. Some of you know very well what it's like to feel the pressure to have to please people. Some of us grew up in homes where our every move, everything that we did were watched by our families and our communities. We had to do and think and act like they thought we should, even while under the guise of spirituality the vocations we picked, the spouse we chose, the beliefs we hold, and those expectations of man have followed you into adulthood. And so we place these high standards over our own lives and measure our worth based on our performance. You may even burden your own kids with the same weight. Or you may compromise putting your own family first so someone else might be appeased. 
Some of you are held under tight scrutiny for simply going to church. Or if you're, if you're just starting to go to church and are exploring faith, you being here or you asking the questions, there are probably tons of people who, who think you're silly and foolish. Or even for you specifically going to this church, you may be under scrutiny for that. I know it's hard and I know it seems difficult because life on the ground seems so much more real, so much more tangible than this abstract, spacey thing that God says. It seems so much more real and it seems like it matters so much more. It's harder than theoretical understanding of biblical truth. And often when, when these thoughts come into my head, I, I just want to yell and say, God accepts me. Why does anything else matter? And I also want to echo with Paul when he says in, in 1 Corinthians 4, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. For I am not aware of anything against myself. It is the Lord alone who judges. We want so badly for people to approve of us, so badly for people not to reject us. And so we have an entire generation of teens and young adults who compromise their sexuality and make decisions so that their boyfriends will accept them. Or even adults, we wait on others for the cues on how to live and act and behave. We make each other idols to be the gods who give each other significance. We need acceptance from others, and we're controlled by each other. We play back conversations in our head days later of how conversations went and if we said everything right. In our minds, people are big. They are larger than life. And God, he is this small, inconsequential, insignificant being without anything to offer us. But do you remember that sight we just saw a moment ago with our brother Isaiah? The sight of glory and of splendor and of brilliance and beauty and majesty of our glorious King. Do you remember the welcome of God that we received from He who has set the world and everybody in motion? That He has approved of us and has called us blameless. That our sins are forgiven and atoned for. Do you see the folly? of trusting in and worshiping the acceptance of mere men who are here one day and gone the next. What is the remedy to not fear men? What do we do in order to not fear each other? To fear God. This fear for the one who has received Jesus is not just terror. For the one who has Jesus, this holy fear of God is on a continuum that goes from terror and to dread, to a trembling, to astonishment, to awe, to trust, and ultimately to worship and adoration. It calls us to worship this great and glorious God. It's where we find our refuge, and it's where we find our home. So how true and good it is when the poet writes in Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Here's one of the greatest blessings we have in fearing the Lord. We forget about ourselves. When we fear God, when we are astonished by God, we forget about ourselves. 
when we fill our hearts with a view of God's glory, there is less room for the question, what will people think of me? One author put it this way, if you have ever been through a hurricane, a spring rain is nothing to fear. And so in the same way, if you have been in the presence of the almighty God, everything else that once controlled you suddenly has less power. If God is most glorious and I am accepted by this massively glorious God, why would I ever fear others? Does this truth of God's gloriousness make your heart leap for joy? Have you truly gazed upon the beauty and the splendor of his face? Are you brought to your knees in humility when he is before you? Does his brilliance shine brighter in your lives than the most glorious and, and, and the person you admire most in life and you crave acceptance from, whether it be a father or a mother or a spouse or a friend, whoever you can think of, does his face shine brighter than them? Does his constant voice of approval speak louder than the voices of who, both, uh, both of who approve you and who reject you? Does his voice sound louder and more sweet than them? Is God glorious to you? Or has someone else become the judge of your hearts? And just a few questions here for us. Do you find it hard to say to no, pe no to people? Do you find yourself overcommitted? I certainly do, often. Are you scared to speak up in places where you, you should speak up and you're invited to speak up? Do you show favoritism to those who are higher up on the social ladder? Do you make excuses for your mistakes? Do you crave compliments? Do you actually feel the freedom that Christ has offered? While I was driving up to church this morning, I usually listen to NPR most of the time, and I'm just astonished sometimes by, by some of the things that are said. Um, I was listening to a radio broadcast, and I was cringing when I heard this. What the interviewer and the guest were proposing was that success and fulfillment in life is when we start learning about and admiring and loving who we are. That that's when we, when we have been successful. And I wanted to call in and say, no, you are fulfilled and you are satisfied. Anybody who's listening to this radio broadcast, you are satisfied when you learn about who God is. We are unimpressive. We are creatures made by the Creator. We have sinned, but he is perfect. We are marred, but he is glorious. Look to him and then realize who you are. And I wanted to call in and just recite to them scripture. I wanted to call out and, and read scripture that said, O Lord, how majestic is your name. You have set your glory above the heavens. Gaze on that. Or another scripture that says that the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. Or another scripture that says that the fear of the Lord, the one who has the fear of the Lord has confidence, and that there is found a fountain of life. His children will have a refuge there. The world will tell us that we should gaze upon others and ourselves to receive what we are looking for. And we set goals and accomplishments and different things that we aim for. And when they fail, we're back at square one. But God pleads with our wandering hearts and says, 
No, my beloved. Look at me. Gaze upon who I am, and everything else will grow dim in the brilliance of who I am and who I say that you are. As we look back in Isaiah 6 for just one moment, it's interesting, it's interesting to see where the, the passage goes from, him, from here and the story that follows preceding uh, verses 5. Let's turn there for a second. Isaiah 6, the next following verses. When we read here, we see that the truth that God is glorious and that he has accepted Isaiah without having to fear others is exactly what he needed to understand what we read next. And so it says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, Lord, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their ears, eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So if you didn't, if you didn't catch that there, what, what is being commissioned to Isaiah by God is that he is to preach to a bunch of people who will never listen to him. And they are a people who will never accept him. That's an unsettling call. That before even going in, God, God tells him, listen, these are not going to be easy people. These people will reject you. They will say that you are wrong. They will not listen to you. God is telling that they won't respect you. They won't see the validity in what you say. They will tell you what, that you are wrong, but still, go. This is why God gave Isaiah a picture of his gloriousness before he was sent on mission. Because apart from realizing who God is in relation to man, Isaiah would have been broken. He would have fell apart. And when Isaiah asks how long, what does God say? He pretty much says, to do it until I tell you to stop. And even then, it's going to be another failure. It's not the most hopeful, wonderful turn of events that, that one could ask for. Failure. People rejecting him. And, and for Isaiah, it's not like he's some superhuman. It's going to be hard for him. And it's not that the commission is an easy one, but what gives him strength is believing this truth about God through the difficulty. He is not bound to the shifting opinions of man, but is anchored to the unchanging love and acceptance of the Almighty God. Friends, when we fear men, it is bondage. It is slavery, and, and you know it's exhausting. Because every, every move you make, you're thinking about. Every word you say, you're thinking about. You have a hundred words before you actually, in your mind, before you actually say five. The Christian life is supposed to be freeing. But man, we, we just do not feel free sometimes. The fear of man is a horrible way to live. And ironically, it seems harder to live for man than it does to live for God. Holy, perfect God, it seems easier to live for him. And it is. That is freeing. The fear of man tells us how to think, to feel, how to act, how to dress, when to laugh, who to befriend, where to live, how to do everything. Instead of being fixated on man this morning, set your eyes upon God. 
Consider people's expectations, but don't be enslaved to them. Paul loved people, but he knew loving them did not simply mean pleasing them. In fact, in Galatians 1, Paul says that if his aim was to please men, that he would not be a servant of Christ. Our understanding of God should change everything about how we live, about how we judge, our relationship, the way, the way we perceive the world and each other. And, and even when I was thinking through this, this sermon, I was even objecting in my own mind, if, if we don't care about what people think and we only care about what God thinks, isn't that just an excuse to just live and sin any way that we want? And you may have been thinking the same thing. Aren't people a good judge of, of, what, of how we live? And, and I want to say that is true, and we have accountability, and we have all of those things. But, but I also want to remind us of the words of Paul in, chapter, in Romans chapter 6, that he says, What shall we then say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it? And so to Paul, this question makes no sense. If one truly understood God's unmerited approval and grace, received forgiveness, and were made alive in him, we would live and think differently about our sin. As we wrap up, I want us to get a vision for what life could look like if we saw God as most glorious rather than each other. What would happen if we began to hold our reputation so lightly before men because we were so content with our standing with God? That we would be so tired of the superficiality and that we would be able to remove our masks. How liberating would it be to say that God's opinion matters more to me than yours or yours um, I, I mean very little to you in light of who God is and what God says about you. How liberating would that be? Can I come to church and just be Sibby and you can be you? And we can be vulnerable to each other with who we are and our sins and our shortcomings and our quirks and our differences and that I wouldn't even be so concerned with what you think that you would be able to speak into my life and point out sin and show me when I am wrong that you would be able to call me to repent of my sin. That we wouldn't be fearful with one another to say, brother, sister, maybe you should, you should walk differently and follow God's footsteps and fall, and instead of following your own. Maybe we could be a community, a church that is honest and transparent and, and, and true and honest about our own sins and our, and our failures. What would that kind of a church, what would that kind of a community look like? That we don't have to impress each other with lofty speech or one-up each other with external trappings or accomplishments and things we, we claim as so valuable. And what could this mean for how we share the gospel with others? Instead of being so consumed with how we might be perceived, that we might not shy away, but rather like Isaiah, that we would lovingly offer the single most important thing that anybody could ever hear that a truth that we speak to them could save them from sin and from hell, gaining Jesus and eternal life. If we considered God to be glorious and man to be small, how would that change mission? The truth of God being glorious could mean a lot of things in life, that we're not filled with second-guessing our every word and decision, 
that we're not trying to impress everybody who's up on a higher social ladder or people who we consider to be admirable or embellishing the truth to make ourselves seem better or more important. Rather, allowing others into our lives to have more deep and deeper and more meaningful relationships. Embracing and believing this truth can bring joy, freedom, satisfaction, perspective, salvation for others, and glory to our God. As we consider God as glorious, we cannot help but see Jesus. Though he was not physically glorious when he came to this earth, he radiated a spiritual glory. This was God in the flesh who came to the earth, who despite the rejection and humiliation of people around him, pursued salvation for us and endured death on a cross for us. For our sake, Jesus, the very Son of God, holy and blameless, was in fact disapproved by God, the Father, so that we might be approved. How can our hearts not be changed as we consider the acceptance of God? How can our hearts be led astray to believe that anything else could be more glorious? Our understanding of God should change everything. And so, when our hearts wander and seek significance in anything other than God, let our hearts be filled with the sight of God's glory. Let the pages of our Bibles be worn out as we seek to believe the truth that is in it and fight the lies that the world throws at us with such force and such reality that seem more real than God. Preach the truths of the gospel to our hearts and encourage others with it as well. My brothers, my sisters, God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. Let's pray. God, that you would give Isaiah a vision for your glory and him not be consumed by the radiance, the brilliance of who you are, but rather invite him to you, atoning his sin is amazing, Father. And God, that is our story. Father, that you have accepted us, though we should have been consumed by your brilliance and glory and your fire and your wrath for sin, that you would accept us and that we would be able to stand before you, O oh God. God, when our hearts wander and believe that people and things and earthly possessions are more valuable, more significant, more glorious than who you are. Father, may we believe the truth of your word. May our eyes look to you and gaze even upon the cross where our redemption is found, where we are ultimately accepted. Father, be good to us and let this word penetrate our hearts deeply, even as we leave this place when we hit the pavement, and when we tomorrow face the world again. Father, let this truth ring true in our hearts and our lives. To you be the praise and the glory. Amen.